Welcome, live and direct, from Studio C with Christina Nicole and Georgie D, all the way from the big island of sunny California, IA. I'm George. And I'm Christina Nicole. And together, we are George Stina. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Right Beside You, as we do life right beside each other. While sometimes agreeing, sometimes disagreeing, but ultimately meeting meeting in in the the middle. middle. Because at the end of the day, I'm not above you. I'm not below you. I'm I'm right right beside beside you. Cheers. Welcome back, beautiful people, to another episode of, you guessed it, your favorite podcast, Right Beside You, where we do life right beside each other. I'm your host, Christina Nicole, and I am here with my best friend, my lover, the one and only Black Man, Georgie. Oh, hit him with the bass today. All right, I see you. I went with the low, the low, low, no. Well, you hitting him with the low, that takes us right into our message of the day, which comes from the former First Lady of the United States of America, Michelle Obama. And what she said is, when I want to go low, it's all about my own ego. It's not about solving anything. It's about seeking revenge on a thing that happened to you. And that's relevant because what we're talking about today is a black man's perspective on being black in America. I've been black my whole life. Mm. Born that way. Probably going to die that way. Unless I get that uh, vitiligo like uh, the good brother Michael Jackson. R.I.P. But just with the state of everything that's going on in the world today, and we're seeing black men over and over being shot by the police, and some of them being killed by the police, and... These are the images we're constantly being fed. So we now have a culture where they're, everyone's aware that there's this fear of the police. If you're black, it's always been there. That's not, everybody's like, wow, I had no idea this was happening. And if you're black, this has been happening forever. It's nothing new to us. That's why when people ask me how I feel about it, they say, oh, are you surprised by what's going on? No, I'm not. It's, this is America. So is that how you were kind of brought up or raised? I was made aware at a very young age that as a black man or a black person, there are an entirely different set of rules 
that apply to me than what apply to other people. And I learned this in the first grade. Mm. I went to a private school. And in the first grade, I was able to read at a fifth or sixth grade level. So me being the curious, inquisitive kid that I was, I went and read the entire handbook Mm -hmm. for the school. So I knew all the rules. I knew what you could do, what you couldn't do. I knew what our holidays were. I knew the school, um, the school charter, everything. I knew everything that was in that book. My baby was smart. But one of the policies that they had in that book was that there was no candy allowed at the school, period. Mm-hmm. It was right there in English. I could read it. So at one point, another kid had candy. I knew that we weren't allowed to have candy. Me being the naive six-year-old that I was, I went and told the teacher. I said, hey, the book says we're not supposed to have candy. So-and-so has candy. They punished me. Mm. This is a private Christian school. Mm -hmm. They punished me for snitching. Dang. (laughs) Like, this this wasn't school of the hard knocks. This was a private Christian school. They punished me for speaking up and saying something. And then didn't punish the kid for actually breaking the rules. And that was probably the most... That was probably my earliest memory of having to deal with being treated differently because I'm black. Mm. And that's at six, five, six years old. Yeah, first grade. Yeah. In that time, did you understand what was happening or was it until later that, you know, either you had a discussion with your mom or dad? When did you realize it or was it instantly Um, I'm pretty sure that I had a discussion with my mom because I told her what happened. Mm -hmm. She immediately took me out of that school, basically told them, F you guys, and found my sister and I both another school to go to. And she specifically spoke to the headmaster of that school and told them, this is what happened. Mm Mm-hmm. I know we're in the South. I know my kids are probably going to be the only black kids in their class. But I don't want my kids treated differently because they're black. Yeah. And the headmaster, she's a great lady, Mrs. Wofford. She said, you bring them babies over here. I'm going to take care of them babies. And she always did treat us fairly and equitably from the time I started that school in first grade until I graduated in sixth grade. So there's always the stigma about regional racism and how certain people will treat you, but you really have to treat everybody on a case-by-case basis because, yeah. you know, some some people might have heard her southern accent and just assume one thing about her, and that wasn't how she was or is at all. Yeah. And I, I'm appreciative that I was able to move into a more fair environment for me. Right. And granted, I still, there were still underlying things that I dealt with even there where there was a teacher who had an advanced reading group. Again, 
I'm in first grade. I can read at a sixth grade level. Mm-hmm. The teacher started an advanced reading group, and then I was not included in that. Wow. And only when I spoke up and I said, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're reading this because it's the advanced reading group. Yo, what's up? Yeah. You're like, hello. <laughs> yeah. I'm right here. I can read. It's not illegal anymore. <laughs> um. So those are just kind of a couple of instances where as a young black kid mm-hmm. that I was able to see that I, w- I was treated differently than everyone around me. And oftentimes, I will walk into a room and I will be the only black person in that room. And that's normal for me. Yeah. To be the only person in a room that looks like me. And I think that's something that a lot of people really cannot relate to. Because anywhere they go, there's going to be somebody who looks like them. Yes, at least someone they can identify with or find that community. Mm-hmm. In. Absolutely. And I know you've dealt with that too. Being a a islander, there's not a lot of islanders when you go certain places, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. I definitely identify with showing up to a place and being not represented or 0.0000001% of mm-hmm. the representation. And, and you're that one. I'm the only one. I'm like, hey, where, where are my people at? Where are my ooses? <laughs> so I... I I definitely can relate and I can empathize with you in that regard. And there's a struggle in that in and of itself because you show up to an environment and you don't see yourself. And everyone, whether you acknowledge it or or not, whether it's conscious or subconscious, you just want to have that sense of belonging you know, whether it's to a community or whether it's to a school or a group or even in your friend crew or your group, you just want to have that sense of, I belong here. And that is very difficult. So would you say that that, would you say those instances kind of shifted the way you kind of proceeded maybe in the future? I think for me, at least growing up in Tennessee from first to eighth grade, mm-hmm. I felt like I was extra aware of the fact that I was black. And on top of being black, it was almost as though I didn't fit in with anybody because... In that town, there are, I think the black population is 5 to 10% of the city, at least when we live there. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is now. Mm-hmm. But of that 5 to 10%, 90% of the black population 
live below the poverty line. So me being a black kid excluded me from a lot of the white kids. But then me not being a poor black kid excluded me from a lot of the black kids because I didn't have the same struggle and I didn't have the same background that they did. Yeah. And especially when we moved from the east side of town, which is the quote unquote black poor side of town Mm -hmm. to my parents bought a brand new house overlooking the lake, three stories, 4,000 square feet on a third acre of land. People would come to the house and didn't believe we lived there. Mm. There was an instance where somebody came and knocked on the door and my mom answered the door and the person got an attitude with my mom. They saw the lady that my mom had cleaning the house who was white in the background. They said, Hey, go fetch me the owner of the house. Wow. So my mom slammed the door in their face and they opened it back up and said, what do you want? Wow. And they said, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, no, you did mean something by it. So what do you want? And I think, Instances like that, you really have to, I think my mom did a good job of teaching us to confront the, the, the racism and the BS when we saw it. Yeah. Because there's another instance, I think my mom did a good job of teaching us to confront the BS when we saw it, because there's another instance when we lived in that neighborhood where I don't know exactly how it happened, but my sister started hanging out with these two girls. And I don't know if it was her parents or or their somebody somebody basically said to these two girls, Don't hang out with the little black girl. Mm. And they left a nasty note saying, we don't want to hang out with you. We don't want to see you again, blah, blah, blah. (sighs) And my sister was devastated behind it. And then one of them came back by like a month or two later and was like, oh, is Claudette home? I was like, no, don't come over here again. Yeah. Kick rocks. And And that's the kind of thing that was to a certain degree normal for me, especially growing up out there. Yeah. And there's another instance I can think of that we started to talk about last night was the use of the N-word. There were, there was this group of guys that I grew up playing basketball with. So from the time I was in third grade until... Really, until I left there in after the eighth grade, I knew these guys. I played basketball with them. Uh, we, sometimes we were on the same team. Sometimes we were on opposite teams. But they were in my grade, and I remember I was walking outside the gym at my middle school. This wasn't the same school that the headmaster was there. I went. I graduated from there. Went to a bigger school, and I was walking outside the gym uh, after school one day. And these three guys, I, I can see their faces right now. Mm. Uh, one of them says, oh, yeah, you're a cool nigger now. 
right as I walked around the corner. And then he saw me and he turned white. And for me, there's nothing I could do. I just had to shake my head and keep walking. But that's the kind of attitude that was pervasive with a lot of people and not everybody because you can't paint everybody with the same brush. But there were people like that that had those feelings and I think a lot of times it comes from ignorance because Mm -hmm. the only thing they know about black people is what they see on the news. Yeah. And the 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 disparity in the way black people and specifically black men are portrayed versus white men just to put it in black and white terms is astounding and there are so many layers to this onion about what creates this culture where black people as a whole are undervalued yeah There are really no words because as a person, one, I don't think that you should ever feel that way, like in that moment in which you overheard that kid. And especially at a younger age where you are really impressionable and maybe you don't really even understand. Maybe the kid doesn't even understand like why is he being malicious? Is he hearing this from his parents? Is he hearing this from other kids around him? Like, what is it? Another thing that you brought up that I thought was really important is the fact that you said you didn't really feel like you belong because you weren't white. But then as far as being a part of the 90% of the black population that was in poverty, it's like you, it's a lose-lose or you can't win because I like, I refer back to uh, the movie Selena and I remember anything for Selena's. Her family kind of experienced something very similar as far as being a Mexican-American because They weren't Mexican enough, but then they weren't American enough. So it's like you don't speak Spanish, so the Mexicans don't accept you. And then, you you know, you're not a certain color, so you're, you're not American. And there's this weird dichotomy or something where it's it doesn't make sense, especially growing up to you as an impressionable child. And another thing that you brought up, you brought up so many great points, but when I was in college, I remember being a student, I identify as a student of color, and for the first time, I was exposed to being a part of the minority population because growing up, where I grew up, I was always part of the majority. There's students of color, it was so diverse. But then when I went to college, it was culture shock. And I remember just going grocery shopping in 
the nearby grocery store and this lady approached me. She seemed very frustrated and I don't know why she approached me or I do know why she approached me, but her words were, do you know that the toilet is not working and we need toilet paper? Lady, I don't work here. And I don't even know if I knew what it meant in that moment. But I do remember just being in shock. And then later on, I was digesting her words. And I I was like, wow. Okay, one, she thought I worked there, which I didn't. And I, I thought, why would she think that? And use your imagination. So there were instances in my life where I could identify. Another one is my very own roommate freshman year. She told me that I shouldn't have got in to college and I didn't really belong there. And probably the only reason that I was there was because of affirmative action. She said this to my face and... First of all, I told her, you don't know me. And like, where is this coming from? You know what I mean? Like, why? And obviously your first reaction is to react. But I think us both, we kind of just have to take a step back. Because for me, I do understand that there is a sense of ignorance that comes along with this. And... I don't have to prove anything to anyone and I didn't have to prove myself to her, but little did she know that I was at the top of my class in high school. So I didn't defend myself. I said, okay, like you do you boo and I'm gonna do me. And another thing is she was going through so much in her life. And I think that's how she, she took it out on me. And that's another thing when it comes to someone acting out. Hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. And a lot of times your initial reaction is to say something back that will hurt them or respond in a way in which they want you to. And I think... You make more of a statement when you remain calm and almost like unaffected. Yeah, I think that goes back to our message about when you go low and you get on somebody else's level that's below you. Yeah. You are acting out of ego because you're saying, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let this person show me up or put me down. I'm, they don't know about me. They're going to find out today. (laughs) It's, and you can't operate in that space all the time. Sometimes you do have to go high and let your actions speak louder than your words or let your success speak louder than your actions, I guess, if that makes sense. Like you have to, because you, you can let, let your action show and throw hands, but what does that really prove? Right. 
And I think another place where I can actually think of another story, probably at that same grocery store that you were talking about. <laughs> yes. Um, I was in college, same grocery store. Mm-hmm. I lived across the street. So I would go over there and sometimes I just browse around. And because I lived across the street, I would walk in there, buy Gatorade and walk out. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go grocery shopping every time. That's probably why I grocery shop the way that I do now that irritates you. (laughs) That's another story. Um, But anytime we just walk over there. So I was, I got dinner from one of the restaurants right there next to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Walked in, was trying to figure out if I wanted to get something to drink, didn't see anything, walked out. Mm-hmm. This guy who's a shopping cart attendant or something, he confronted me saying, why do I see you in here every day? Are you in here stealing? Wow. Like, Unlike you, bro, I live in this neighborhood, so... <sighs> You know, what was in your bag? Chipotle. Just like it says on the bag, it's Chipotle. You want to look inside? But, I mean, that's that. Hmm. I feel like that's one of those instances where people have a bias and they don't even know. And we hmm. we all have biases. Yeah. I know I have biases. I see certain people and I judge them like, oh, this person's probably like that. And... But I try to be aware of my bias and try to give people the benefit of the doubt, give them a chance to prove me wrong. Because there's always these stories about where some guy comes in in ratty jeans and a dirty shirt and goes into a car dealership and nobody will help him. But then the one guy who will say something to him and and help him ends up getting the sale and the guy's a multimillionaire and that's how I try to treat people is don't judge a book by its cover you mm-hmm. you don't know what is below that outer layer of what somebody's presenting to the world because I know people probably look at me and think oh he's probably uneducated he probably doesn't know anything he probably just you know smokes weed all day and uh, like i'm sure that certain people will see me and just pass immediately pass judgment and have this whole picture of who i am Mm -hmm. as an individual and before even speaking one word to me they try to automatically stereotype you and place you in this box and say, oh, yeah, he's probably like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think with everyone, if you get to know them, you can find a lot more common ground than you would think. I think as a black man, that knowing that you are perceived a certain way and you can be perceived immediately a certain way, you have to, if you're aware of that, you have to carry yourself a certain way. And you have to be aware of other people's bias towards or against you just so you know what you're up against. 
I think that's relevant whether you're walking into a job interview and you're walking into a room of people who are potentially hiring you or if you're pulled over and dealing with the police. The, the same way that people can formulate those biases, some of those people are police. And I think that you have to know what you're up against. Yeah. I mean, furthermore, just being a 6'5", 300-pound man, some people may perceive you as already being a threat or just be in that fear state of mind. And when people are operating out of fear, they act differently, they move differently. And I witnessed this with you for the very first time when we were on our way to San Diego on the freeway going the same exact speed as everyone else and we got pulled over. I instantly seen a shift in your demeanor and everything went from, man, we're excited, we're going on a weekend trip for the homie's birthday, bumping music, chilling, to I can do everything right in this situation and something could change instantly. And from my perspective, just seeing you, how you were carrying yourself very respectfully very slowly in the sense of you literally put your hands on the steering wheel didn't move them until you were granted that access so to speak and you said everything you were going to do even if the officer said, oh, I need your license and registration. You said, okay, I'm going to reach for my license and registration. It's in my pocket. It's in the glove box. It's, you know what I mean? You, I've never witnessed that. And that, to me, from my perspective, it's like eye-opening. And I don't know if you want to elaborate on that encounter because probably for you, that's, would you say, maybe normal? Oh, 100%. That's, that's normal. And what's crazy to me is when I see videos of people on the side of the road cussing at cops, yelling at them, throwing the tickets at them, I wouldn't even dream of doing that. Yeah. Because I know... I'm not going to get that same leeway that Karen gets when she's yelling at the cop because she's mad that he gave her a ticket for driving straight through a stop sign while she's texting on her phone and, and doing her nails behind the wheel. And he's trying to give her a warning and she won't even give him the time of day. I, I don't have that leeway. I already know. And... There's, I can think of so many times where I've been pulled over and to me, 
getting pulled over is immediately a life or death situation. I remember you describing it to me as my only goal in situations like that is to survive the encounter. Yeah, and I've been pulled over numerous times for minor violations and the officer has gone as far as checking the VIN number on my vehicle to make sure that it's not, that it's the vehicle that the registration says it is. Or um, in, in that specific encounter, I had two knives in my pocket. And when I, when I got off my motorcycle, I stepped off, took my helmet off, set it down. I put my hands on my head like this. He said, all right, license registration, blah, blah, blah. And I told him, before we even start, I have two knives in my pocket. Just go ahead and take them because I want to go home today. That's what I told him. I want to go home. Thank you for listening to part one of this two-part episode about being a black man in America and surviving the encounter when dealing with the police or any other forces that you may come against. Because this was such a passionate discussion and a topic that's really close to my heart, we ended up having to break it up into two segments. So segment two will drop tomorrow. And until then, we love you. Peace. Congratulations. If you're still listening, that means you made it to the end of this episode. If you want to claim your special prize, hit that subscribe button and you'll never miss out. Also, follow us on Instagram at right beside you. That's R-I-G-H-T-B-S-I-D-E-Y-O-U for exclusive content, daily stories, and some good laughs. Don't forget to review our podcast if you like what you hear. Even if you hate us, whatever. Let us know.